September 17th is the Finish the Job for the People Day of Action, calling on the Senate to pass the For the People Act. There will be events around the country. Find an action near you and get involved. I myself am unwilling to let democracy die without a fight. Join me on September 17th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time as we talk about democracy under fire, the assault on democracy and what we are doing about it. To register, go to tinyurl.com slash democracy under fire 917. My name is Rich Procida. I'm the founder of the Truth and Democracy Coalition and the host of Democracy Under Fire, a new YouTube show and podcast covering the threat to democracy and what we are doing about it. I'm also the producer of Bible Study for Progressives. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the parable of the sower. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. episodes, Jesus has been sparring with scribes and Pharisees, the wise men of the ruling class, and beating them in public debate. They essentially call him a terrorist for liberating someone from deep spiritual imperial oppression, but he turns the tables on them, pointing out their complicity with the empire and describing himself not as a terrorist, but as a thief who will plunder their house to rescue those held hostage there. In this episode, he begins to speak in riddles or parables, the meaning of which will be concealed from the wise men of the ruling class and given only to his chosen ones, those who can be trusted with the secrets of the new society. 
My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 32 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin with chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Again, this gospel makes the point that in the new society, one's status and allegiances are not determined by one's birth family. In the ancient Mediterranean world, one's family, one's household, one's tribe and nation defined a person. These were the entities that demanded allegiance. Jesus here repudiates these allegiances in favor of the new society, which will include people regardless of what family or tribe or nation they come from. Birth does not determine belonging in the new society. Rather, our brothers and sisters are those who follow the teachings of the new society, who put into practice the will of the one Father in heaven, putting aside their allegiance to the household fathers of the old society. The parables that he is about to tell are based on this idea of a new household, a different kind of nation or kingdom, one not born of man, not born of the old household fathers, but born of God. Let's continue with chapter 13, verses 1 to 3a, 1 to 3, just the beginning of verse 3. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat there, while the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. After redefining who his family is, he comes out of the house and sits on a boat on the sea. I have talked a lot about the image of house in the last two episodes. The image of the sea symbolizes the empire. In previous episodes, I have shown how the sea is the place where empires come from, both literally and literarily. And at the end of chapter 8, we saw how Jesus tamed the wild imperial sea. He now sits on it to teach. The imagery is powerful. On another level, this is a worker setting. He is talking to peasant farmers and fisher people, and he starts telling them stories about farming and fishing. He starts with a farming story. Let's read, starting with the beginning of verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. 
Other seed fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil, and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Jesus speaks in parables. He does not reveal the meaning to the crowds, but only later to his inner circle of disciples in private. But he says to the crowds, Let anyone with ears listen. In other words, he signals to the crowds that there is a hidden secret message in this parable, i.e., some of them will get it and others won't. Why does he do this? Why does he tell a parable that only some will understand? Well, one reason is that, as we will see when we get to the interpretation of the parable, he is talking about organizing strategy for the movement within which lies its revolutionary hope. I will unpack that shortly, but here I want to point out that this kind of talk is very threatening to authoritarian regimes. And Jesus may not know who is in the crowds. There may be undercover agents sent by the authorities or peasants who for whatever reason are collaborating with the authorities. Or maybe he does know who is in the crowd because he sees scribes and Pharisees, the professionals of the ruling class. He sees them in the crowds. They were present in the last chapter and at one point in that chapter were conspiring to destroy him. Fear of incurring the wrath of the authorities was a very legitimate fear for anyone organizing in ancient Israel in the early first century. Josephus describes the virtual police state under Herod the Great. In his work, Antiquities of the Jews, he writes, All activity was watched. The punishments given to those caught were harsh. Both openly and secretly, many were brought to the fortress Hyrcania, and executed. Both in the city and on the open roads, there were men who spied on those who met together. So, when speaking of revolutionary hope and organizing strategy, Jesus hides it in parables to hide it from those who might report all of them to the authorities. This is something that I think the original audience would have assumed. But it is not exactly the stated reason in the text. The reason that Jesus actually states for using parables comes next. Let's continue with verses 10 to 17. Then the disciples came and asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that says, You will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, so they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So, this is really weird. Jesus withholds the interpretation of the parable from the crowds, and as we will see, he is about to give the explanation to his inner circle of disciples in private, and then blames the crowds for not knowing the interpretation or not understanding the parable. That sounds very unfair, doesn't it? But, if we understand this in the context of the story, and as a common literary device that the audience of the story, not the audience in the story, but the audience of the story, would recognize, it makes a lot more sense. Let's start with the context in the story. In the last couple of chapters, Jesus has experienced rejection of his message. The rejection is articulated by the scribes and the Pharisees, who are part of the ruling class, but because they are the official leaders in that society, many peasants likely follow their lead, so much so that at the end of chapter 11, we hear of whole towns that have rejected the message. And then in chapter 12, the scribes and the Pharisees conspire to destroy him. They have heard his message and rejected it, and now they want to kill him. So Jesus quotes the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, both of whom speak of the rejection of their messages by people who don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. And because this whole thing has gotten dangerous, he has to take aside his inner circle to give only them the interpretation. Now only those who can be trusted will get the secret interpretation. Only they will get the secrets. So that puts Jesus' statements in context of the larger story. But there is also a larger literary context. Using parables to hide and reveal truths was a common literary device in the prophetic literature of ancient Israel. The book of Ezekiel, for example, constantly uses parables to reveal its message and introduces them as such. Ezekiel 17.2 says, Mortal, pose a riddle, and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Ezekiel 24.3 reads, Speak a parable to the rebellious house. Notice again the symbolic use of the word house in that the parables are spoken to a hostile audience, the rebellious house. But as I said, parables are used both to reveal and conceal. And the whole notion that their secrets are revealed to some and hidden from others is very common. The book of Daniel is full of parabolic dreams and visions, the purpose of which are summed up at the end in Daniel 12, 9-10. It reads, The words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked shall continue to act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. That sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying to the crowds when he says, Those who have ears to hear, listen. The message will remain hidden from some, but the wise ones will get it even without explanation. I'll say more about Daniel shortly. Also, there is a Dead Sea Scroll called The Community Rule that contains this passage. 
He shall conceal the teaching of the law from men of injustice, but shall impart true knowledge and righteous judgment to those who have chosen the way. He shall guide them in all knowledge according to the spirit of each and according to the rule of the age, and shall thus instruct them in the secrets of marvelous truth. So this story in Matthew is following this prophetic motif of hiding secrets from people of injustice and revealing them only to a chosen few, in this case, the chosen disciples, those who can be trusted, and anyone in the crowd who is wise enough to understand. Also, the revealing of secrets signals the fall of oppressive political powers. First Enoch 38, 3-5 reads, When too the secrets of the righteous shall be revealed, then shall sinners be judged, and impious men shall be afflicted in the presence of the just and the chosen. From that period those who possess the earth shall cease to be powerful and exalted. Those who possess the earth shall cease to be powerful and exalted. And now back to the book of Daniel, a very important book for Matthew. The whole book is about secrets being revealed and empires falling. That's the whole book in a nutshell. It tells about the revealing of dreams and spins parables about the downfall of empires. And Daniel is a very important book for Matthew. That's where Jesus' favorite phrase for himself, son of man, comes from. Additionally, 4th Ezra, roughly contemporary with Matthew and speaking of the fall of the Roman Empire, says, And I told him many wondrous things, and showed him the secrets of the times and the end, and commanded him, saying, These words shall you declare, and these you shall hide. That's 4th Ezra 14, 5-6. From this we can conclude several things. One, that this strange move of giving secrets only to a chosen few is a common literary device in apocalyptic and prophetic literature, and also wisdom literature, but for the sake of time, I didn't get to the wisdom literature examples. Number two, the revealing of secrets is a literary signal that the dominant political powers are about to be overthrown. Number three, secrecy is a strategy to hide the movement from the powers about to be overthrown. And number four, the secrets are therefore about the liberation of the people. They are about the new society, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Whereas we will see very soon, there is enough food for everyone and where all are equal. Or as Jesus will teach later in the story, the first will be last and the last will be first and the greatest will be the servant of all. These are the secrets of the kingdom. Radical equality and abundance for all. These are the secrets that are threatening to the authorities and have to be hidden from them. And I want to add two more conclusions that stem from the stubbornness or blindness of the elites and those under their sway. Number five, the secrets are hidden in part because the elites are not able to see the coming liberation. They are too arrogant and cannot see. They are too arrogant to imagine the demise of their own power or to imagine a world in which the peasants and social outcasts have equal social, political, and economic power to them. And number six, because of this, 
their blindness becomes a judgment against them. What little understanding they have will be taken away. Then Jesus gives the explanation of the parable of the sower in verses 18 to 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what is sown on the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and in another thirty. In the Torah, seed is a euphemism for the male sperm and the offspring that they produce, which populate the nation. For example, in Genesis 15, Abraham is given a vision that his seed will become a nation. Then the prophets, during the times of oppression by the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Greek empires, speak of sowing the seed in their visions of liberation and resurrection of the Israelite nation. For example, Ezekiel 36, 8-10, envisioning a return from the Babylonian exile, reads, But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot out your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they shall soon come home. See, now I am for you. I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply your population." The whole house of Israel, all of it, the towns shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. You can hear in that passage word images in common with Jesus' parable of the sower. Ezekiel speaks of sowing and of multiplication. So in the Hebrew scriptures, seed is first the male sperm that populates the nation. Then in the prophets, that sperm, that seed, is sown again, so that the nation is reborn and liberated. Now here in this parable in Matthew, seed is identified as the word of God, not the male sperm. Jesus is saying that the offspring that populate this new nation, the children that populate this new kingdom, are produced by the word of God. They are not produced by being born of Israelite fathers. This new society will transcend nations and ethnicities as well as the patriarchal households. The seed does not come from the bodies of men, but from God. And we are back to where we started in this episode, when Jesus said that his brothers and sisters are those who do the will of God. Also, this new kind of seed is not just contrasted with sperm, but with a sword. In antiquity, kingdoms expanded both by the seed of the fathers 
and by military conquest. That is also part of Israel's history, and definitely part of Rome's. The parable of the sower shows the kingdom being spread through this new seed, the word of God, which is the message of the new society. The kingdom of God, the new society, spreads through words, not through the sword. It spreads nonviolently among the kingdoms of the world. When it is sown, some of it does not stick, but it does take root in others and produces a harvest that brings liberation and an end to empire. I'll come right back to that in a minute. But first I want to say that any organizer can attest to the truth of this parable. We make speeches. We have one-on-one meetings. We post on social media. The message takes root in some, but then dies for various reasons. But it does root deeply in others. And so we have hope for a harvest. Now, the harvest imagery in the parable is agrarian imagery that the peasant audience would have understood vividly. The harvest that Jesus describes is not typical of a real-world harvest. A typical yield would have been about fivefold. But in this parable, the lowest yield is 30-fold and goes up to 100-fold. So it is not a typical harvest in the world that they know. But this harvest imagery is typical of word images from the prophets and apocalyptic writers when speaking of the days of liberation, the dawning of a new society of justice and abundance for all. For example, Second Baruch, a Jewish apocalyptic work roughly contemporary with Matthew, envisions the messianic days of liberation from the Roman Empire and the establishment of a new society. In chapter 29, verses 5 to 6, it proclaims, The earth also shall yield its fruit ten thousandfold on each vine. There shall be a thousand branches, and each branch shall produce a thousand clusters, and each cluster produce a thousand grapes, and each grape produce a core of wine. And those who have hungered shall rejoice. And those who have hungered shall rejoice. The parable of the sower tells the secret that a new society, the kingdom of God, will spread secretly, nonviolently, by word of mouth among the kingdoms of this world. The new society will rise up in the shell of the old to displace it and provide justice and abundance for all. Those who are hungry shall hunger no more. That is what this parable is about. That is the secret hidden from the authorities, but given to the trusted peasant disciple organizers. The rest of the chapter will elaborate this theme. But for now, my name is Bert Newton. The music for this podcast series is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. If you like what you're hearing and want to support us, you can rate us on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or any other platform that allows you to do that. You can also leave a review, or you can donate through PayPal to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. That's subversivewisdom at gmail.com. You can also send questions to subversivewisdom at gmail.com and I will answer them. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us 
on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Procida. Thank you for listening.